And please take your Bibles and turn to, you can turn to Psalm 52 uh, if you'd like. We are, we are going to be more topical this evening as it is part two of the message. This morning we exposited Psalm 52, we walked through it together, and as we did so, our consideration was David's words about the wickedness and the wicked tongue, the wicked speaking of Doeg the Edomite, which references us back to 1 Samuel 21 and 22, as we learned about in our morning series. Doeg was a wicked man who used lies and deceit to establish the guilt of Ahimelech in the matter of assisting David, resulting in the death not only of Ahimelech, but of 85 priests and their families and even their animals. Within the context, we considered the power of words, the power of words to bless and to curse, to establish and to destroy. And we finished, we applied this morning with the positives. Five positive, five affirmative lessons from the Word of God referencing how we should use our words. And we mentioned that it is often more beneficial for us if we had the choice between one or the other. It's far more beneficial for us to know what we ought to do than what we should not do because if we pursue what we ought to do, then the wrong just falls away. That's, that's how this Christian life works. And so we talked about how we should use our words, the character of our speech, how it should conform us to the teachings of Jesus Christ. And we gave this list. Use your words to bless. Use your words to edify. Use your words to thank. Use your words to teach. And use your words to praise God. And each one of these had a a scriptural basis for it. In James 3, we spoke of this morning, James 3, 1 through 10, we saw James describe the tongue, which is the, the metaphorical concept given to our communication or our speech. He described the tongue as a small thing which wields great power. He likened our tongues to a horse's bridle which is able to turn an entire horse, a large animal, turned by just a very small piece. He likened our tongues to the helm of a ship, which is able to turn a whole vessel, a very large ship, by by such a small helm and rudder. He likened our tongues to a, a small fire which can kindle a wildfire if it's not careful. He told us that the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity, and that it's set on the fire of hell, that literally the very worst of, of the lake of fire can be brought out of a man through his words. And James concluded by saying that with the same tongue we can bless God and curse men, but this ought not be so. And so we considered in part one our capacity to bless through our words, to edify, to thank, to teach, to praise God. What we didn't talk about in part one was the ways that our mouth can be used to bring about destruction. The kind of destruction which James speaks of in James chapter 3. The kind of destruction that a small little spark can light an entire fire, forest fire. That kind of destruction. And that will be our focus of our time together this evening, highlighting various scriptural teachings as it relates to sinful speech. 
Now, in part one, we described the positive attributes, what it should be, and maybe as we walked through those attributes, you found them in your own speech. You found those attributes. You said, yes, I do bless. I do thank. I do edify. I do do these things. Maybe the Holy Spirit didn't really pinpoint anything in your heart with reference to your communication. But perhaps as we walk through the warnings in part two, and we give some of the examples of of the negative warnings in Scripture about how we speak to one another, the Holy Spirit might have more tools at His disposal in order to highlight some of those things in our lives that perhaps we, we haven't seen to this point. And that's the desire this evening. I don't want to discourage us, but it is important that we have the teaching necessary to be able to search our own hearts and allow the Holy Spirit to search our hearts and to draw us into more Christ-likeness. And so this evening, this morning we considered our words and their capacity to bless. This evening we consider our words and their capacity to destroy. You know, words mean so very little to people today, don't they? Words mean so little to people. In the age of social media, in the age of texting, words have become extremely impersonal, but no less powerful. You get on social media, for those of you that might dabble in such things, and what you will find is that people are filled with anger. And they have no problem from the safety of their own desk, in their own office, talking to a person digitally over a thousand miles or a million miles, yelling and screaming and and calling names and being absolutely terrible. They're mean, they're cutting, they gossip, they tear down. This is really what social media is all day, every day, if, if, if if you've ever been on it or looked into it. It's a terrible place. Social media is a very hostile place. It's filled with all manner of, of verbal, communicative evil. And society's comfort with this terrible speech in social media, it seems, has boiled over into real life in many aspects of society. I was trying to figure it out a little while ago, why it was that it seems society was getting more mean and angry. And and that's when I kind of put together this social media connection that people have been doing this online now for years and it's starting to boil over into how they actually live and talk to people. Consider as an example the presidential election this year, right? And so we've been going through the, the... nominations for the primaries. And as we've been going through it, part, on, on both sides, but particularly on the Republican side this year, it's been little more than a cesspool of lies and deceit and constant verbal attacking one of another. You sit there and you listen to these men talk and you wonder if they're just children. And yet, as these men talk and you say, are these, I mean, is this a, really a, a six-year-old schoolyard brawl here? While you're listening, what are people doing in the background? They love it. They love it. Because all of that stuff that they're only doing when they're behind their computer yelling at people on the internet is now being brought to light. Someone else is yelling at these people for them. Consider how the debates have been in this election cycle. And it's really ironic, is it not? This election cycle, these primaries, they're intended to bring out the most popular candidate in any party and have him get to the top so that the whole party can get behind one candidate. But in the end... Those who are running in any particular party are supposed to be on the same side, right? But how violent have these debates been? 
how cutting and degrading and just these men are tearing and women are tearing each other to shreds. These people are supposed to have the similar ideologies and listen to how deeply they are cutting at one another. We're not even talking about ideologies or philosophies anymore. We're talking about ad hominem, personal attacks on, on people. In their attempts to win party nomination, they're, they're destroying everyone's reputation and honor. Now, ironically, the very worst of all the candidates is the most popular, and this should tell you something about our culture. Mr. Trump is vindictive, he's cutting, he's threatening, he's angry, he's a liar, he uses words to destroy, to deceive, to provoke. And people love him for it. They love him for it. And this is indicative of our time. This is indicative of where we are as a culture. We live in an angry, angry time, and it comes out in our words one towards another. And don't think that it can't rub off on Christians. But it should not rub off on Christians. It should not be named among followers of Christ. So let's consider some of the ways that our words have the capacity to destroy. This morning, we had the good part. I'm sorry for those of you that weren't here. We had the good part, the part where our words have the capacity to bless. That was pleasant to listen to. This evening, let's consider our words having the capacity to destroy. First, lying. A lie is when you give information that is not true. We've distinguished the difference between lies and deceit before. A lie is when you give information that is not true. Deceit would generally be when you withhold information that would allow someone to come to the truth. And that's generally the, dis the, the distinction between them. As we talk about lying, I'm not going to park on lying this, this evening because we just had a message on lying and the consequences on lying but a couple of weeks ago. So if you want that message, you can go to the website, LegacyBaptistChurch.net. You can go to YouTube, and I think it's on YouTube. I think that that's one of the ones that we've gotten on YouTube by this point. So if you'd like to listen to that message, um, it was actually, I preached it January 31st, so it would be on YouTube, called The Nature of Truth. And you can listen to that one. It's sufficient this evening that we let the word of God speak for itself on the nature of lying. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 to 19 says, These six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, and heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that be swift in running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among the brethren, among brethren. Two times in that list of seven, lying comes up. That should tell us something about exactly how much the Lord hates it when we lie. Lying is probably the most common form of using our tongue for evil, using our words for evil as we lie one to another. But there's many more that we need to add to the list. The next one, and this is where we'll begin to park a little bit, is what, what we'll call discord or strife. Or provocation. To spread discord is to say things that cause strife, that cause conflict, that provoke people to sinful responses. The word in the King James is often translated to stir up strife. Anyone who has children or who has had siblings understands what it is to see this provocation unto anger, to stir up discord and strife. Siblings are notorious for knowing the flashing buttons, right? 
and they know what button to push to get the other sibling to erupt. And in fact, it can be a sport, right? That they've got the flashing button and you kind of, you wake up one morning, you're like, what should I do today? Oh, look, there's sister. Right? Okay, now, now the day's starting out well. And we laugh, and it, it can be done in jest and such, but at the same time as we say that, it's dangerous, isn't it, to sow discord, to cause strife. Even when you're trying to do it for fun. Who's having fun, right? Who's having fun when we sow discord, when we cause strife? Are we really both having fun here? Or am I actually damaging? Am I blessing, edifying, thanking, praising the Lord? Or am I tearing down when I push that button with my words, when I sow discord and strife? This problem goes well beyond just siblings though, right? We can think of provocation in the context of siblings. Like I said, it can be somewhat comical, but sowing discord can destroy lives. Sowing discord can destroy families. Sowing discord can destroy churches. The stirring up of strife is often done through other sins of the tongue. We'll consider this evening some other sins of the tongue. Lying, gossip, tearing people down, cutting people with words. We'll consider these individually. But oftentimes it is other sins of the tongue that that bring about the sin of, of sowing discord among the brethren. But consider what God has to say about the subject. In Proverbs chapter 16 verses 27 and 28, the scriptures tell us, An ungodly man diggeth up evil, and in his lips there is a burning fire. We're speaking of his lips here, what he says. A froward man soweth strife, and a whisperer, a gossip, separateth chief friends. There's some damaging implications to that verse, those verses, aren't there? Proverbs 28, 25, He that is of a proud heart stirreth up strife. But he that putteth his trust in the Lord shall be made fat, shall be, be made comfortable, confident, happy. The man who digs up evil, whose lips burn with discord and provocation, the man who sows strife into the lives of others with his lips, the man who whispers about others to separate them, this man, the scriptures tell us, is an ungodly man. That word ungodly is not one that is pleasant to hear, particularly when we think about our own lives. But when you do these things, when you, through your words, seek to hurt others or or stir up to provoke others to sin, to anger, to strife, strife between people, strife between you and someone else, you are being most ungodly. When a man comes into the church and he begins to divide the church through slander or gossip or adding confusion where there should be clarity, He is being ungodly. Such words embody everything that God hates. Such words embody everything that characterizes God's greatest enemy, doesn't it? Satan. Satan himself, who is the slanderer, who is the liar from the beginning, who is the deceiver, who is the destroyer. Stirring up of strife does this. Proverbs 28, 25, we read it already. The man that seeks to elevate himself by leading others to destruction. The man that seeks his own personal gain through the misery of others. The man who heightens his own feelings of superiority by dragging others into the mire of his emotional mud pit. 
Proverbs 28, 21 says this, As coals are to burning coals and wood to fire, so is a contentious man to kindle strife. It's a wicked thing to stir up contention. When a a contentious man gets into a, a situation that's tense, it's like throwing wood on the fire. It just erupts. just makes it worse. It just inflames it deeper. It's a terrible thing. It's an evil thing to be known as a person who provokes others, who stirs people up against each other. Now, today we lessen this evil, right? We call it people that need drama in their lives or they're addicted to drama. It's as if after years of watching sitcoms, some people are convinced that if there isn't conflict in their life, then they're not really living. Because they sat down every week and they watched this sitcom, and every week there was conflict. And so they said, oh, this is how life is supposed to be. So now if they don't have conflict, there's, there's problems in their life. They stir up conflict almost to, to validate the fact that they're living or to validate the fact that someone cares about them. In fact, there's even a pop culture term for these kind of people. The kind of people who create conflict in their minds or in their lives in order that they can share that conflict and bring others around them into it. You probably don't know this term, so let me introduce you to the pop culture term for this. They're called drama llamas. The drama llama. Why the drama llama? Well, because they randomly throw out drama just like a a llama randomly spits on people. You never know when it's going to happen. They're just going to throw out drama, and it's going to be this big drama thing. And that's what it's called today. It's called drama. People who live and thrive off of conflict while at the same time claiming to hate conflict. They call them drama llamas. But do you know what the Bible calls it? Sin. Sinful pride. Sinful sowing of discord. Sinful strife. Sinful provocation. Ungodliness. This is one of several possible motivations for stirring up strife. Some stir up strife in vindictive spite because they want that person to suffer. Some stir up strife in order to distract distract themselves from their own feelings. They feel bad, so let's let everyone feel bad with me, right? There are numerous reasons why people stir up strife, but regardless of the reasons, it's wrong. And we ought not be a part of it. And it is interesting, as we look at the scriptural record, warnings against stirring up strife, being quarrelsome, there's a unique emphasis in the scriptures on women with this deficiency. Now, I'm not trying to say that to upset the women in here, but it is interesting as I studied. You know, there's not a lot of times where you see a separation between man and woman in the scriptures. But in the case of quarrelsome strife, women are mentioned specifically many times. Look what the scriptures have to say. Proverbs 21, verses 9 and verse 19. It is better to dwell in the corner of the housetop than with a brawling woman in a wide house. Verse 19, it is better to dwell in the wilderness than with a contentious and an angry woman. In verse 9 and in verse 19, those words that you have highlighted, brawling and contentious, they are both the same word that we've been looking at tonight to stir up strife. But it doesn't end there. The verses continue. Proverbs 25, 24, it is better to dwell in the corner of a housetop than with a brawling woman in a wide house. We, we read that one already, right? Proverbs 27, 15, a continual dropping in a very rainy day and a contentious woman are alike. 
Both of these words, brawling and contentious, once again, are that same word in the Hebrew to stir up strife. All four verses, as a matter of fact, Proverbs 21.9 and Proverbs 25.24 are the same verse repeated. All four of these verses, however, warn us about this tendency in the woman and warn others to stay very far away from these women. Now, when the Bible says something once, that's enough to make you listen. When the Bible repeats something two times, you should definitely perk your ears. If the Bible says the same thing three or more times, you really, really need to pay attention. Because that's something that the Bible really wants you to understand. The first three of these verses are almost the exact same statement. That it would be better living in a very small corner in the top of a house. Like, you're not protected from the elements on a rooftop. But better to live in the corner on a rooftop of a house than to be in a big house with a woman who has a tendency to cause drama, strife, or arguments. Better to dwell in the wilderness, Proverbs 21, 19 said. Better to be anywhere than to be living with a woman who is divisive, quarrelsome, and a provocateur. Now the final verse, Proverbs 27, 15, is a little bit different, isn't it? That verse likens a woman that causes strife to a continual dropping of water. You, you, you know that one, right? You're trying to sleep and you hear drip, 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 drip. And you know you're not sleeping. Because that drip is just, ugh, right? You just got to stop the drip. So you shove a rag into the, you, you do something to stop the drip. You're trying to think and you hear it, right? Drip. Drip, drip, and all of a sudden, there's no capacity to think. There's no capacity to focus because of that, that drip. And it's literally so annoying that you can't think, you can't sleep, you can't function. Something as small as a drippy faucet can paralyze your productivity, can paralyze your capacity to function. And the scriptures tell us that's what a contentious woman is like. She is paralyzing, and she's destructive. Women. Why are four verses in the Proverbs directed explicitly towards this danger of angry, brawling, quarrelsome, strife-causing women? Well, one of the most popular expressions of this concept was derived from a play written in 1697 called The Morning Bride, and it says this, Heaven has no rage like love to hatred turned, nor hell a fury like a woman scorned. Women being made by God as naturally more emotional creatures have a capacity for drama, emotionally driven action, emotionally driven strife that lies far beyond many men. Now this does not mean that women are naturally more ungodly or or bent toward greater sinfulness or anything like that. This is not a statement of, of female inferiority here. But it is a well-established tendency that the scriptures speak to that it is more prevalent in women than men to be this kind of strife-causing, drama-loving, emotionally-driven idea. And as such, women, you need to be particularly aware of this tendency so that you can guard your virtue against the temptation to stir up strife, conflict, or to live in emotional drama. Because you, you... Probably, if we take the scriptures at its implication, you're probably more prone to it. This particular sin of the tongue. 
Proverbs 17:14 says, "The beginning of strife is as when one letteth out water, therefore leave off contention before it be meddled with." This verse presents a strong warning, one which we'll consider a little bit more in a moment, and it effectively says this: Once you open the floodgates of strife, once you begin stirring up strife, not only is it difficult to stop, but it is impossible to control, and you cannot you, you can not only do great damage. But you can do damage in ways you never thought possible or you never ever intended. When our words divide, when they cause strife, when they provoke, when they encourage discord, we are operating contrary to the will of God and it is sin. I remember doing this to my sisters. I had to apologize to them. When, actually, it was after I became a pastor. I was preaching a message one day about words, the tongue, and my, the Spirit of God just convicted me, and I had to call my sister, and I had to apologize to her because I used to be so terrible to her. I used to say things to her. I used to make fun of how she looked. And, make, and, and, and you know, I, I, I called her, and I said, I'm sorry. And she said, you know, whatever. But, but that could have done some real damage, couldn't it? When you mock a person for, for how they and, and we're not even quite in, in mocking yet, but I was trying to stir up strife. When you do that, you don't know what it could do. You don't know what it could do in the heart of a person. What it could do in that family relationship when you choose to stir up strife. You have no control over what it will do. You, you open the floodgate. You let it go. But once that floodgate's open, you have, no, you have no capacity to stop it and you have no capacity to control where it goes. That's what the scriptures are telling us in Proverbs seventeen fourteen. So lying, discord, strife, provocation. We must hasten on. Tearing down or cutting. Tearing down or cutting. The next way that our words have the capacity to destroy is through tearing down, tearing people down, cutting them with our words. This speaks of when you use words to berate people, to make them feel bad about themselves or their work. This is kind of what I was saying with my sister. When you say things that you know will hurt another person, or perhaps you say, say things because you know it will hurt them. And this is very common in marriage, is it not? In a marriage context... Because this is the context where I am most vulnerable. I, the, the, I am most vulnerable to my wife, am I not? Because I'm closest to my wife. Therefore, she could hurt me greater than any other person in this room could hurt me. She has the capacity to hurt me in a way no one else in this room does because I am, I am most open with her. She knows most about me. I am closest to her and I trust her the most. And so oftentimes it's within the marriage context that we consider this, although, I mean, obviously it's siblings, parents, children, all of those different relationships uh, can be a part of this as well. Some of these things can be small. You know, with my wife and I, my wife doesn't like the word pop in reference to soft drinks. She grew up in the South. She's a Coke girl. Everything was Coke. You go to a place that has Pepsi, you say, I'd like a Coke, and they know what you mean. Uh, it's just, and, and they'd say, what, what kind of Coke do you want? Well, I want a Coke. Not, don't, don't ask me what kind of Coke. I want a Coke, but that's not how it is down there. Well, do you, what kind of Coke do you want? You want a Dr. Pepper? Do you, no, I want a Coke. And, and so that's how the South is. Everything's a Coke. I, I'm, I'm a pop guy, right? I grew up in, in the West, and that's what we called it. We called it pop. And this is, this is a silly example. Now, now, it was never a huge problem with me calling it pop and her calling it, it, it Coke until we had children. And when my wife, the first time my, my wife heard my daughters call it pop, 
something snapped in her. Now, she didn't go crazy. She just hated it. It grated on her. It, she really had a problem with the concept that the next generation of Wicklers was passing along this pop word. Now, I can make it a game, right? I can. I can make it a game, and I can, I can sneak up to the girls at night and whisper pop in their ear while they're sleeping. And then I can wake up in the morning and start talking. Everything could, I, could, I could throw pop in every sentence. And I could watch as my wife rise and everything, and she might get the, the little smile on her face. And, you know, I like that because cute little dimples and everything. And, and so I could do that, and, and I'm having a good time here. But, but here's the thing about that. I do know that it gets under her skin. And when I do this, I'm reflecting a principle, aren't I? No matter how small, I, I, I am to some degree when I do that, cutting my wife just a little bit. No matter how strange or silly I find it that she really has a problem with this. Should I really allow that kind of a spirit to have a place in my home? Now, it may not matter much when it comes to the word pop. I've known some families that tease, and my family, we show love by teasing and such. And so, so to, to some degree, that doesn't matter. But I give you that example because what about when it does really matter? When I am having a conflict with my wife's side of the family, and I intentionally say things about her parents that I know hurt her or upset her. And I know what it's going to do when I say that, and I'm going to say it anyway, perhaps because I want her to feel that pain of me cutting her her family down because I want her to feel that because because I want to get back at her or I want to hurt her I want to make her feel my hurt when I'm hanging out with my friends and I call my wife my old lady or the old ball and chain or the boss lady even though I know it mischaracterizes her virtue my wife is not a ball and chain nor is she an old lady nor is she the boss lady now, I can say these things to impress the guys because it's fun and because I get acceptance with them, but am I not mischaracterizing my wife's virtue? Does not my wife work so hard to reflect a submissive? Now, now I'm, I'm saying this about my wife, but I'm using her, but the idea is do not our wives in this Christian context work so hard to reflect submissive attitudes, to align themselves with the word of God? to be that virtuous woman that she is called to be? And shouldn't I speak to her and about her in the context of what I would desire her to be and, and what I believe she's attempting to become? Not in hurtful terms, just so I can get a jolly or just so I can impress the guys. When the tearing down and the lying are left unchecked, it can, it can damage relationships. This can be a problem. And look, if it matters in major contexts, then why should we tear down even in the minor things? If, if there comes a point where we cross a line, then why should we be flirting with that line to begin with? If tearing down and cutting are such terrible things, why, then, then why, why would we ever do it? Why would we set the precedent? Siblings, teasing one another is often part of a game. I get it. I'm a sibling. I get it. It's what siblings do. You poke at each other. You push at each other's buttons. You do it because you can, and, and, and no one really holds it against one another. But, but what happens when you set this precedent? That these things under certain circumstances are okay. I, I would caution you to be very careful with this. 
no lines, watch limits, but I would caution you even more so because it can get out of hand and, and you don't know quite how that one jest about that one particular area of your brother or sister that actually matters to them, when you hit that area, and, and you may have been joking in 10 other areas that they're okay, whatever, they can, but when you hit that one area and you may not even know that you hit it, it could really hurt them really hurt them and it could do some damage if a person has a flaw or a vulnerability or is self-conscious about something the fact that you know that means you have the responsibility to protect them in that area not to exploit them in that area if if they've got a particular soft spot a flaw an imperfection maybe it's their looks maybe it's their weight maybe it's their skills something they can do, something they can't do, something they're trying hard to do but they can't get it, because you know that, you have a responsibility to them in that area. Just like my wife and I. We know things about each other. We know our strengths and we know our weaknesses. How awful would it be if we use those to exploit one another? Instead, we use them to support and love and, and protect and, and encourage one another. We protect those vulnerable areas. We don't exploit them. And you know what word really troubles me when I think of this? It's another pop culture thing right now. I know our church isn't really into pop culture, and I thank the Lord for that. But it's the word fail. They've got entire websites dedicated to the word fail, right? You see a video of a person trying to go over a jump, and they wipe out, and their face is all scratched up, and it says fail above it. You're walking with a friend, and they trip, and you say fail. It's very unkind. And with certain personalities it can really cause an issue with them when you're going around telling them that everything they're doing is failing just because they tripped here or they made a mistake there. Oftentimes, the motivation for tearing down others, think about it for just a minute. I don't, you don't have to answer out loud, but, but let's just think about this. What might be the motivation that we would have, even in, a, even in a joking context, what might be a personal motivation for tearing someone down? Oftentimes, it's to build ourselves up, right? To make ourselves look good at their expense, to make ourselves feel better about ourselves, our own pride. Oftentimes, our motivation for cutting words is to passive-aggressively punish or anger someone without being directly confrontational with it. And why avoid confrontation? Because when I am confrontationally cutting or tearing people down, I look bad because everyone looks at me as the bad guy. But if I passive-aggressively come at it from an angle and joke about it and cut them down, if I can get in at that back door and cut people, tear them down, then I can feel good about myself and still accomplish this terrible goal of making myself look better at their expense. And it's really wrong. God does not like it. It's reprehensible in his eyes. Proverbs twelve eighteen. There is that speaketh like the piercings of a sword, but the tongue of the wise is health. Proverbs sixteen twenty seven. An ungodly man diggeth up evil, and in his lips there is a burning fire. We spoke about that one already. The idea of, of an ungodly man having a tongue like piercing swords, cutting people, stabbing people, hurting people, this is how Doeg was described by, by remember, we're, we're supposed to be in Psalm 52. We are there, technically. Uh, this is how Doeg described David. I mean, David described Doeg. 
he described him as a man whose words were like sharp razors working deceitfully. It's ungodly. So let's continue, because we must hasten on. Lying, discord, strife, provocation, tearing down and cutting, gossip. Gossip is number four. Gossip is a, per- a gossip is a person who talks about the affairs of others without their knowledge, without their consent, or without them being there to explain or to defend themselves. A gossip is a person who passes along unsubstantiated information about others. In the Bible, they are often called in our King James translation, tale bearers. People who pass along little bits of information, regardless of accuracy, regardless of validation, in order to keep people talking. The gossip or the talebearer is very closely linked to the person who stirs up strife and discord because often the end of gossip is strife and discord, right? Often that's where gossip leads. You gossip about people and then it causes fights. It brings problems. If the politician is our best modern example of the one who constantly cuts and tears down for one's own benefit, the, the best example of modern gossip would be simply the media, right? The media. Regardless of how reputable a media outlet is supposed to be, in 2016, the media is little more than an avenue for unsubstantiated gossip. People who report, they report without facts or in spite of facts or before the facts can be ascertained. They're telling you things that they've heard or that, they've, that, that are suspected before any proof or any facts come in. People will make claims, regardless of whether they're true or false, without regard for personal damage that their gossip and tailbearing might have on the one who's being gossiped about. But while the media is a good example of this, it really happens everywhere, doesn't it? We can look at the media and say, yeah, those gossipers, but it really does happen everywhere. The human heart is prone to love gossip because it's, it's interesting. The juicier, the better, right? To learn things about people which are scandalous or, or, or unknown. We know something they don't know. To have that secret knowledge that gives us feelings of power. And we all like power. But we have all seen gossip ruin lives, haven't we? An accusation of misconduct, even if it's not true or if it's unsubstantiated, has been known to destroy lives. Crumble families. Ruin careers. Destroy churches. And sometimes that gossip comes and it goes and the man's life is destroyed and then he's vindicated. But you know what? It's too late. It's too late. The life has already been ruined. When you hear someone, something about someone, and you pass that information along without taking it first to the person of whom you heard it, you're a gossip. And you run the risk of passing along lies or at least passing along information that lacks the whole story. How many times have we made a claim or passed along information to someone only to find out that we were totally wrong about them? We were wrong about their actions or perhaps we were wrong about their intention for their actions. I saw so-and-so doing this today. He must have been there for this reason, right? We're making a whole bunch of assumptions and as it turns out, that's not why he was there and you slandered him and you gossiped about him and it hurt his reputation. Or perhaps it hurt him. And while you can always say, I'm sorry, you can't undo the damage that these words do. Once the word goes out, you can't have it back. They take on a life of their own, spreading and damaging. You don't know where it will end up. You don't know how far it will go. You don't know how much damage it can do before it is stopped. 
damage can rightly be seen to be kind of like a, uh, excuse me, gossip can rightly be seen to be like a virus. When, when you cough, you can either cover your mouth or not cover your mouth. If you cover your mouth, those germs stop at your hand. They go no farther. But if you choose not to cover your mouth, then you cough. And, and, and as soon as those germs leave, you have no control over them any longer. You can't guide the germs through a path of the air just to hit one person. You can't guide the germs uh, into the corner of the room where it won't bother anybody, right? You can't do that. Once the germs go out, they're out. I was talking to someone this morning about airplanes, and we were talking about germs. The fact that you've got that little vent hitting you when you're on an airplane, and it's like you just, you know, the air is circulating in your eyes. It's just like a germ factory, right? It's a germ factory in there. You can't control what those germs do. You can't control where they go. Maybe you wanted to get one person sick, right? So you cough and cough and cough all over this person to try to get them sick. But will you make that one person sick or will you make a thousand persons, people sick? You, you can't control that, can you? When you make him sick, how many people is he going to make sick based upon you getting him sick? You can't control that, can you? And what if you just wanted to lay him up for a couple of weeks and he ends up dying? You didn't mean that. But you can't control that. That's, that's gossip. You can put it out there, but once it's out there, it takes on a life of its own. You can't control it. You can't control where it goes. You say, okay, I'm going to tell this to one person. Don't tell anybody else, but I heard this. Okay, now here's the thing. Here's the thing with that, right? Don't tell anybody else. What are you doing? You're telling that person, and so they're going to say, okay, who do I trust? Okay, I'm not supposed to tell anyone, but I trust you, so I'm going to tell you. And then they go to the person they trust. I'm not supposed to tell anyone. Don't tell anyone. But I'm going to tell you. That happens, doesn't it? I remember when my wife and I got engaged. My wife and I got engaged, and we weren't telling anybody. We were both uh, authority figures on campus, and and we we had some reasons why why we we didn't want at the time to tell anybody. So I, I we get engaged, and the next day. I told a couple of close friends, don't tell anyone, you know, that sort of thing. And the next day, I'm, I'm driving off campus, and the window rolls down on this, these four college girls in the car. The windows roll down. Jamin, congratulations, I heard that you're engaged. And I thought, wait a minute. I told these few guys not to, but, but, but the guy had to tell his girlfriend, right? Because that's what you do. You've got to tell your girlfriend. And then the girlfriend has girlfriends. And next thing you know, oh, congratulations. That's, that's, how the, that's how words work, right? As soon as I said, I'm going to tell somebody I'm engaged, I shouldn't have been surprised where those words went. Because as soon as they're out of my mouth, they take on a life of their own. I have no control over them any longer. That's the character of gossip. This is why James calls the tongue an unruly evil. Because it cannot be tamed. You can't control your words once they're gone. And gossip is indeed a deadly way to use the tongue. Next, lying, discord, strife, provocation, tearing down, cutting, gossip, perversity, and vulgar jesting. This is our final consideration this evening. Perversity and vulgar or foolish jesting. We considered this in part... In part 1, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 4, the text gave us a list of types of speech which are not becoming of children of God, things which are not appropriate, things which are, are, are the scriptures say, not convenient. He says in Ephesians 5, 4, neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor jesting. 
He says these are not convenient, that word explicitly meaning not appropriate. Filthiness would be obscene language. When we, this is what we would often call swear words. Swear words uh, work on shock value, right? That, that's what swear words are there for. They work on shock value. They supply emphasis through wickedness. You say, wow, that's a wicked word. Now I know he's serious. Wow, that's a wicked word. So now I guess it's supposed to be funny because he used this word. Shock value. That's what swear words are intended to function as. Those who use verbal obscenities, they reveal something about themselves. They, re- they reveal that they, they do not have the capacity in their own words to stand. They, they, their words can't stand on their own two feet. So they must supplement them with vulgarity in order to communicate purpose. Those who use verbal obscenities reveal a heart of moral immaturity and ignorance. And it's, it's unbecoming of unbelievers. Foolish talking. This is excessive silliness. So much so that no one can take you seriously. We might think about the boy who cried wolf, that kind of a thing. There's a place to have fun. There's a time to be silly. But it should not define you. You should not be defined as a silly person. When silliness defines your speech so that people can't or don't take you seriously, you've gone far beyond that which is convenient, far beyond that which is proper. And this is because if no one can take you seriously, then how can you convey to them, communicate to them the importance of this book? If, if a person is always joking, if he's just a constant silly person, then when it's time to get serious, will they get serious with you? If I'm little more than a buffoon, who will listen when I try to tell them that there is a sinner's hell? Who will listen when I try to tell them that people really go there? Who will listen when I tell them that there's a way to be saved from it through Jesus Christ? If I'm just the class clown, who will listen to me? And finally, jesting. This is speaking specifically of vulgar jesting. Dirty jokes, dirty minds. Perverse jesting, language which is morally dirty, filled with sexual references, moral misconduct, language which glorifies immorality and perversity and evil. Certain industries, such as the comedy industry, are are literally defined by that kind of filth. And it should not be in our mouths, and it should not be supported by us as believers. Proverbs 15.4 says, A wholesome tongue is a tree of life. But perverseness therein is a breach in the spirit. Perverseness of tongue, the proverb says, breaches the spirit. It's an offense to the very spirit of a man. There's a spiritual deadening that perverse and vulgar jesting affects on the spirit of a man. It morally deadens you when you allow that kind of stuff to get into your life and to be funny and you use it. There's a moral deadening that takes place. Now, in part one, we mentioned already, we spoke of various ways that we can use our words unto godliness, to bless, to edify, to thank, to teach, and to praise God. And as we conclude our thoughts on this topic in this two-part message, let's contemplate for a few moments the character of that type of communication. So that's, that's the good stuff. What is the character of the communication that will accomplish godly purposes. Well, here's its character. Number one, righteous words are characterized by truth. Righteous words are characterized by truth. Proverbs twelve seventeen: He that speaketh truth 
showeth forth righteousness, but a false witness deceit. Righteous words are characterized by truth. I'm just going to hit these. Number two, justice. Righteous words are characterized by being just. Proverbs 20, 10 verse 20, excuse me. The tongue of the just is as choice silver. The heart of the wicked is little worth. Truth. Justice. Number three, encouragement. I apologize, I don't have the reference there. The lips of the righteous feed many, but fools die for want of wisdom. I don't even know what the reference is. I didn't write it down either. Uh, It's not on my, my notes, but... It's in the Bible. You can find it. Wisdom. Proverbs 15.2 The tongue of the wise useth knowledge aright, but the mouth of fools poureth out foolishness. The, the tongue of the wise takes the knowledge that he has and he uses it properly. Purity. Proverbs 15.4 A wholesome tongue is a tree of life. But perverseness therein is a breach in the spirit. We talked about that already. A wholesome tongue is a tree of life. So here's our list. Truth, justice, love, encouragement, wisdom, purity. These are the characteristics of righteous speaking. This is, this is the character of blessing and thanking and edifying and encouraging and teaching and praising God. It meets these characteristics. Words that conform themselves to this character find in themselves the character of God. And they can accomplish the purposes to which God sends them. When our words are light and life, when, when our words are indicative of the one who is life and light, how can they but go out and accomplish the purpose of that life who was the light. And this is our purpose, is it not? Is not our purpose as followers of Christ, as the redeemed of the Lord, as children of the living God, to accomplish His purpose? You know, Jesus said this in Matthew 10, 24 and 25. The disciple is not above his master, nor the servant above his Lord. It is enough for the disciple that he be as his master, and the servant as his Lord. It is enough for us that our words reflect the character of the one who died for us. It is enough for us that our words reflect truth, justice, love, encouragement, wisdom, and purity. And when our words reflect Christ, we reflect Christ. When our words are right, then they accomplish right things. So how are we doing today? This morning we learned about the positives, what what our words can do positively. This evening we learned about the negatives, what our words can do negatively. Husband, wife, mom, dad, child, siblings, boss, employee, teacher, student, pastor, congregation. In each of these contexts, we say words. We learned this morning how powerful those words are. And we all can attest, whether through personal experience or through the lives of others that we've seen, just how 
destructive words can be. And we know that. So let's not number ourselves among those who use the words in that manner. Parents, siblings, I would encourage you at home, be careful, be very, very careful setting up a culture of jesting and mocking and cutting, even in fun. Because when the line gets crossed, and and by the way, as much as you know your siblings or your husband or your wife or your children, you don't know where all those lines are. You just don't, and you can't. And when those lines get crossed, damage can be done. And if we don't want to cause damage, how much better just to let our words be this, characterized by these, characterized by Christ. Let's close in prayer.